The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Alumni Ventures. Invest with confidence. Discover the power of venture investing with Alumni Ventures, America's largest venture firm for individual investors. Learn more at av.vc. LinkedIn presents. I was working for the Colbert Report, which is daily television or was daily television when it was on the air. I was an original staff member there. And I was highly ambitious. I mean, I got in on the ground floor. I was one of the original people there. I was, you know, it was just the most amazing, exciting time to be part of something like that. It was incredible. Uh, and then my mom died. And one minute she was alive, then she was dead. And I kind of looked at my job as why is any of this? It, like, it just didn't feel so important to me. I'm Maura Aarons Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever. We look at stories from business leaders who've dealt with anxiety, depression, or other mental health challenges, how they fell down, how they pick themselves up, and how they hope work will change in the future. Grief and loss happens to most of us. But there's no employee handbook about how to handle dealing with them, especially while you're managing a big career. You will bring your grief to work long after that last casserole is eaten and your bereavement leave is over, says my guest, Rebecca Soffer. And so we need to find ways to take care of ourselves and manage through. She has advice from managing triggering sneak attacks at work to recasting a performance review schedule when you've been dealing with loss for months and maybe not worked at your fullest. Rebecca will even help guide us through the awkwardness we might feel when working with people who are living with loss, when we don't know what to do or say or how to show support without saying the wrong thing. And let's face it, workers and companies need help with this. And talking about it has to be part of our modern workplace vernacular. Rebecca wrote The Modern Loss Handbook, a book with practical ways to think about and manage grief, and giant companies like Amazon have sought her help and advice. And so I wanted to talk to her for this show about what we can really do at work, whether we're someone experiencing grief or we're working with or managing someone in that position. Here's our conversation. This has been an enormous time of grief in general. And while there are certainly parts of my book that really do relate to death loss. I would say that the visceral goal of the book is to help people remember their people in one of the first parts of the book through ritual and memory and really hard questions and really meaningful questions. And so, yes, some of that is like prompts that will help you to remember and think through and even come up with challenging things that you might want to think through more with, say, a therapist or a friend. But, you know, a lot of the book really relates to how do I manage really hard and uncertain times where I don't even understand what like tomorrow looks like, let alone next year? How do I live in a space that's really uncomfortable when it's become clear that the discomfort is going to continue, that everything is going to feel tenuous for the foreseeable future? And how do I do that while still like showing up for others and showing up for myself and learning how to draw boundaries and learning how to care for my body and my mind and, you know, grow friendships, manage intimate relationships? And the hope is for me that the people who are reading it 
who are grieving a death loss, be it recent or years ago, because it's still germane, that the tools that they develop would be things that they can transfer over to other challenging experiences in their lives and apply them. And and, and one of the things that I think is relevant for a lot of people during these times is you really take issue with the sort of military and war metaphors that we as yeah. a society like to append to people who are going through loss, you know, focus on your strength, you're a survivor, you're a warrior, you know. Yeah. And you say if you keep furiously powering through situations, you're going to power yourself right off a cliff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I think that's really applicable to a lot of people right now. Yeah. I mean, look, we we really, really love using the war metaphors, you know, and, and I still, to this day, people who you know, I really respect and and like no matter what, keep saying, oh, they lost their battle or they've been fighting so hard. And I get it. I really yeah. do get it. I get it, especially when it comes to somebody you're close with and you want to, you know, you want them to be strong. You want them to fight for life and health and hanging on. But, you know, I think that there's this um, kind of inherent suggestion that like by being a warrior, like th we think of warriors as like showing ongoing strength and like putting a stiff upper lip and like just powering through yep. no matter what. And like, I, I don't know, like when you're moving through something like grief, which um, shakes you down mind, body and soul in endless permutations and combinations, you know, you don't have to be a warrior. You just have to move through it. Sometimes you're going to have a sneak attack and, and completely lose yourself for a couple hours because you're like lost in a memory or reverie or a reminder or like a traumatic moment or trigger. You know, sometimes you're going to feel like you've got this a bit because you had a really good therapy session or you connected with a new person who made you feel seen. Mm. Um, you just got to move through it. And that's why I, you know, came up with the crab suggestion, which is really like think like a crab, you know, and just the general idea being like crabs are incredibly resilient. I mean, the horseshoe crab is the most resilient animal on earth. Um, and yes, horseshoe crabs are animals. They're not crustaceans, but like it worked with my metaphor. And then all these other crabs, you have them being able to pivot. Like if something's not working for them, they move to the left, they move to the right, they move to the side, they can move sideways. You know, when life like decks them where it hurts in the sense that they may literally lose an appendage, sometimes they grow it back, you know, and maybe it's not, doesn't look the same. It's weird looking. It's kind of unfamiliar, but it's there. It grows. It grows out of like a hard thing. And so, yeah, I always say like crabs, like their only job is to really hold on to shifting sand and find their way and their footing. And so that's what I wish people would do when they look at how they approach grief. You know, you just got to hang on sometimes. And that is as worthy and as effective as like, and, you know, as if not more so than convincing yourself that you're a warrior. You believe in the power of storytelling. And we know from trauma research that being able to integrate a narrative or story of trauma into your larger narrative is really healing. And I'm, I'm curious how storytelling came to you? Was it sort of like a personal aha moment? 
how did how did you decide that storytelling, not warrior imagery, was going to be the way forward for modern loss in the community? Well, because I'm a storyteller. I mean, like, we're all storytellers, you know, I'm not just like, I'm a storyteller. I worked in media. We're all storytellers. We're all storytellers. That's how we connect with people. That's how we build bridges. That's how we, you know, grow our, our ability to be empathic and imagine what it's like to be in someone else's shoes. That's how we um, are moved to be a part of grassroots campaigns that may not affect us directly, but we understand how they're affecting others. And so we believe that we should advocate for them, such as bereavement leave or like school programs that, you know, maybe we don't even have kids, but we understand what kids and parents are going through. And we advocate for them because we read the stories of what it feels like to go through that. So storytelling is a change agent. I mean, that's just what it is. And Modern Loss was founded on that tenet. You know, I'm a journalist. I'm a former TV person. I worked in satire, political satire. Um, so I'm not a social worker or a side I'm not, you know, I'm not a therapist. I'm just somebody who herself has lived and lives with profound loss and will for the rest of my days. And I understand that there are wonderful arenas to explore that uh, therapeutically or religiously or, you know, other ways. I just wanted to provide a platform for people to just let it all hang out in mm -hmm. ways that are raw and vulnerable and real and can have any tone, any words, you know, without fear mm. of what may people may think of them or, you know, fear of judgment. Uh, like I said, you should think like a crab. You just got to move through this thing. And also, you know, we also have to normalize this conversation because when you treat loss and grief as things that should only be talked about in those circles, then you're not normalizing it. You're just continuing to promote a stigma. You lost your mom when you were 30 and your dad at 34. And I'm, I'm curious how the experience of going through such grief at what seems to me a really important time in one's career, you know, where you're sort of not necessarily early career, but you're not senior, but you're making big decisions. Like, how did all that loss affect your relationship with your ambition and what you had seen as your career plan? That's a great question. Uh, I think that for a while, I not that I lost my ambition. I really didn't. Like, I'm I'm very ambitious. But I think that what, so my mom died in a car accident, and it was just about two years after I graduated no, a year, journalism school at Columbia, and I was working for the Colbert Report, which is daily television, or was daily television when it was on the air. I was an original staff member there, and I was highly ambitious. I mean, I got in on the ground floor. I was one of the original people there. I was, you know, it was just the most amazing, exciting time to be part of something like that. It was incredible. Uh, and then my mom died. And one minute she was alive, then she was dead. And I kind of looked at my job as, as I think many people do, you know, like, well, for, in my case, it was like, <laughs> how are all these people able to laugh? Like, I don't understand. Don't they know my mom's dead? Like, how dare they? But it was also like, you know, because it's work, you have to take that seriously, right? So I'm not like demeaning or like uh, trivializing 
very important things that have to do with the workplace. Like you do need a crew on time. You need things to happen. You need like deadlines to be met. Um, But I was like, why is any of this? Like, it just didn't feel so important to me for a while, you know? Because I was comparing it in a very existential way. I'm uh, like, I'm like, it's not death. Like, no one died. Um, and I remember a friend who was working in PR, and her mom died. And she used to tell me her new uh, ethos was, it's not ER, it's PR. And, you know, <laughs> oh, like in PR, it's like, you know, you can, that can get really pressure cookery, right? <laughs> totally. And she was like, screw it. Like, this is not <laughs> worth it. And because I, I think she was like making herself sick and getting stressed out. And I am an anxious, you know, I, this is an appropriate pod for me to be invited onto. I'm anxious person. That's how I get stuff done. You know, my anxiety drives me um, for better or for worse. And I do think that like for a period of time, it was helpful to me because I didn't take all that so seriously. Uh, But then I started to again because of my ambition and because it also felt like this enormous weighty thing that I had, which was to navigate extreme loss and navigating extreme build phase of my life. And that felt so hard and so impossible. Um, And so then, you know, that felt overwhelming again. But the ambition, I think across the long arc of my experience, I have found that it only grew because it really propelled me to take risks that I may or may not have otherwise taken had my mom and dad not died within four years of each other. I wanted to start Modern Loss, which I started. I co-founded it in 2013. Um, So that's a long time ago now. And I really believed in it. And I didn't understand like, hey, how it would make money or like exactly how to do it. But I just felt very strongly that there was a white space in the conversation about grief and loss and community that really needed to be filled. And I don't know that I would have done something like that. And it definitely wouldn't have been grief oriented. I mean, beforehand, I wasn't interested in that. But I don't know if I would have done like a crazy entrepreneurial, you know, an entrepreneurial journalism project beforehand. But I certainly knew that I was willing to do it in the after of my life, of my lost life, because what was the worst that could happen? You know, I die. <laughs> What's the worst that can happen? You know, and um, and I think that it just. Yeah, I mean, I'm a highly ambitious person, and I would say that at this point in my career, I feel like I have more ambition than I've ever had uh, in my entire career. Which is interesting because I'm now? not just starting out. Yeah. Because I really believe in what I'm doing. And I have since I started it a long time ago. But a lot of people, I would say most people, looked at me as though I had 20 eyes when I said that I ran a grief community and talked about, you know, adversity and building resilience and storytelling. Um, a lot of people thought that sounded like a total downer and that it should be like siloed for when you actually needed it. And now I think everybody understands that we all need it, that there's been an enormous amount of grief in the world and it will continue. Mm-hmm. And it's not just the million plus people who have died in the US alone from COVID alone. And it's like, P.S., way more than that. It's probably like 1.5 at this point mm-hmm. with the real numbers. Um, it's not just because of COVID, it's because of all of our societal grief, our, you know, our identity grief, um, our loss of coping mechanisms. Um, it's just the grief is real. And if we don't talk about it, the body keeps the score Yep, and it will 
remind us that we're not talking about it. And so all of a sudden, everyone understands why I have been doing what I do. And they're taking me more seriously. Or at the very least, they're not looking at me like I have 20 eyes. They're looking at me like I have like six eyes, you know, which is a, it's like a, that's a, that's a, you know, that, that's an improvement. No, I will say as a, as a fellow public speaker, like to just the, the example you described at Amazon is the ultimate stamp of sort of corporate America approval and acknowledgement, which in itself is, is, is kind of astonishing to see how far corporate America has come. Yeah, I mean, I was, you know, I've done a lot. I'm doing increasing amounts of corporate talks, and that is my goal. So if anybody is listening and, and believes that a conversation about this stuff and especially moving through it in the workplace while keeping your head screwed on correctly because you still have to deliver your TPS reports, which, yes, I'm very much dating myself as a proud Gen Xer with that reference. Um you know, that, reach out because I, you know, I also gave, I was Capital One's Mental Health Awareness Month speaker last year. So I've been doing a lot and a lot for like financial firms, law firms, um, because I think that companies are, are realizing that their employees don't have like infinite you know, like the well is not the well is dry, bottomless. The well is you dry. Know, it's just it's dry, and like yeah, it's great to offer healthcare for your body, <laughs> but like it's all connected. And if you have an employee who is feeling a so isolated because they feel like they can't talk about this stuff, and be it like maybe a parent died, maybe they had a miscarriage or a stillbirth, maybe they're dealing with infertility, maybe they're they had. You know, like there's COVID, there, there are like endless ways to die in on this earth. And maybe they're struggling with something that stems from that. If they feel like they can't talk about that, and especially, you know, in a country that still does not have a national bereavement job protection policy, which is absolutely insane to me, then I don't understand how as an employee, you can feel like your company really cares about you. Uh, if they're asking you to brush something that can rear its head at any given moment of the day, you know, under the rug. Under the rug. Well, so-, so I really re- appreciate and respect companies like, you know, I, I appreciate that Amazon really, really threw its weight behind this. You know, like they really did. They really meant it. Um, and they gave me like, I, I, t- I think I talked for an hour and I answered questions for another, you know, X amount of time. And, you know, Capital One, I, I spoke to employees all over the world. And it's these conversations are like very, very open and they're very off the record. Like, yes, you see people's names and like the chat functionality, but it's very clear that like this is a closed conversation. Like nobody's name is being used outside of this. And you would be shocked by what people are not only willing to, but need to share. They need an invitation to talk about this stuff. And they need an invitation to talk about it with their colleagues. They need their colleagues and their employers to know that they're going through hard things. They need them to know that because it takes too much energy to pretend like everything is totally fine. It takes a lot less energy to say that it's not and think about what you might need, and specifically in the workplace, what can your setup look like so that you are nourishing yourself and your needs? And then by extension, your company wins too because you're a more functional human. 
I'm Kwame Christian, and I am the CEO of the American Negotiation Institute, and I want you to check out my podcast, Negotiate Real Change. Listen to conversations with leaders in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space, and learn the secrets behind what it really takes to become a successful advocate, ally, and change maker in your organization. Check out Negotiate Real Change on your favorite podcast player. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. More to-dos, less time, and so many tools to keep track of. Doing business can be hard, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You just need HubSpot. Their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this. Higher quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. Well, so let's get down to brass tacks here. I, I want to talk about how you might ask for what you need, but I want to start on the other side because I, I think that it is true that that many, many of us, we get anxious when we're with a grieving person um, mm-hmm. and it can it can trigger us or we're nervous about saying the wrong thing. And I'm, I'm curious that sort of your advice for someone who has a colleague who's coming back who has lost something or someone, how do you welcome that person back? It's great to see you. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> like, I mean, I, it's, I, it's, it's so good to see you, you know, because the chances are that person is like terrified to be coming back and they know that all eyes are going to be on them. And they know that everyone's gonna be like, Oh, like they just had a miscarriage or like their mom died or their brother OD'd or like they know that people are going to be talking about it. And so why not make themselves feel, make them feel more comfortable just by saying, it's so nice to see you. Why, why would the first thing you say be, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Or like, I'm so sorry for a lot. You know, it's like, why not lead with like, not just the loss, you know, um, but like the person, because when you are navigating of grief, it's really like this unknown landscape. It's very unfamiliar. And sometimes you really just don't feel like yourself. It's very surreal. And so it's really nice to be told by other people that like, kind of like you're still there, you know? And whatever version of you is there, it's nice to see that version. And then, of course, like absolutely after that, I always say that the the, the best thing to say is something, <laughs> not nothing. You know, the worst thing we can do is not say anything, um, you know, because we're nervous to um, bring something up that might remind someone, you know, it's like that's not, you know, we're not reminding anyone of anything they don't know. Um, we just don't like talking about it for many, many reasons that are pretty obvious. And so I always say that like, yes, after you see someone for a long time, make it clear that it's really nice to see them and say, you know, it depends on like your level of connection with them. If it's a colleague and you know that they've had a loss, hey, I'm I'm really sorry that you're going through such a hard time. Like I heard about, I heard that you had a loss. I'm really sorry. You're, I'm really sorry. That sounds really hard. You know, you don't have to say, I'm sorry for your loss. I mean, this is getting into the weeds a bit, but someone, um, a rabbi once told me actually, like, I never say sorry for your loss because you never know what kind of relationship that person had with the other person. And I'm like, yeah, good point, you know? Um, and, but if you're sorry that they're going through something that's really hard, Oh my God, isn't that the easiest thing to say to somebody? 
And you are sorry they're going through something really hard or that sounds really hard. And if you're closer to them at the workplace, you know, you can say, hey, um, like, let's say that you're back at work in real life now, even during COVID, like, hey, like, you know, I was just wondering, do you want to maybe, I wanted to know if like, maybe it would help to take a break every day. Like, you know, like, do you want to let me know times in your schedule when you might be able to take a walk around the block? Or, hey, do you want to grab lunch with me on Wednesdays? Or just say, I'm going to invite you every Wednesday. And like, if you say no, that's cool. But like, maybe one day you'll say yes. Like, just know I'm giving you a standing invitation and I'm going to text you every Wednesday morning to see if you're into it. You know, just like make it clear that like this this is like, yes, it's work. And yes, everyone's going to be expecting you to perform, which is, you know, just the reality. But that there are people there who also recognize that you're a person, you're going through something and that grief doesn't take, it doesn't respect office hours. So chances are they're going to be going through grieving feelings during the work day. Well, and it's really important to take breaks. Yes. Grief doesn't respect office hours. Also, grief doesn't respect a timeline. And um, I experienced in, in, in my own team once, you know, a manager who got frustrated with a grieving colleague because it was up and down for them. Like it was a longer process. How do you how do you be a good colleague over the longer haul? I think that um, over the longer haul, you can be a good colleague by really letting this message sink in. Grief is not the first week or 30 days or even calendar year. Grief can turn into something like living with loss, which is how I view my experience, but it accompanies you 24-7, 365 for the rest of your life. And so when all the casseroles are gone and like, you know, the majority of the people have stopped checking in, that person is still living with that loss. And Tuesday nights may be as difficult, if not more difficult than like the days that you would expect might be really hard, like a holiday or a Hallmark holiday or like a death day. You know, I think it's really important to remember that any time is a great time to check in with that person. Any time. And if you you know, this, I know we're all overwhelmed. I get it. I get it. I get it. You know, one of the reasons I wrote this book was because I was so overwhelmed by all the people who are asking me for help that I had to write a book because I'm only one person and I couldn't give of myself personally time-wise when COVID hit the way that I would have liked to. Um, But just like find out when that person's birthday is and when their person's birthday is. Find out the day they died. Like, was it a mother? You know, can you set Mother's Day in your calendar? Just like literally make Google, like calendar reminders for yourself to check in with that person. And by the way, a text, totally fine. It's totally fine <laughs> to send a text like, hey, I'm thinking of you. I know it's Mother's Day. Yeah. I'm just thinking of you. Like, you know, um, hey, like, I, I, I think, you know, it's it's your dad's birthday this week. Um, if you want to go out for lunch this week, let me know. You know, or if you ever if you want to talk, I'm here. You know, just like you be don't human. Have to, be kind. You don't have to be like a PhD. Just <laughs> exactly be human. Be human. And if you don't know the right thing to say, you can always revert to, hey, I wish I knew the right thing to say. But I, I don't. I, I'm a little awkward around this stuff, but I really care about you. You know, and I'm really sorry you're going through this. And I just want you to know that I'm here. You know, just make it clear that, like, you're they're not scaring you off with their hard thing. 
I would imagine, and you probably have personal experience, you know, that there are times when you're just having a really great work day and then you get triggered. You see a news headline that reminds you of your person or someone's baby pops up. You can't leave work. Maybe you can go sort of cry in the bathroom. Like, is there is there any advice you can give for someone who's trying to reintegrate but is finding themselves, you know, feeling really vulnerable? I think you really need to cut yourself a break. I mean, I think you need to understand that grief is a, a sneaky you know, mistress, you know, and she will tap you. I mean, I'm, I can't believe I'm ascribing a gender to grief, but, you know, she'll, you know, <laughs> women are very crafty. Yes. You know, we <laughs> and so, um, you know, and I say that as a compliment, we, we, we think through many levels of things. And so she'll tap you on the shoulder right before you have a presentation. You know, you will see something on your feed right before you talk to your manager or like have to focus on something that will distract you or throw you off. It's going to happen because your grief is alive because you're alive. It's a very dynamic thing. And you have very little control, especially in the early days of what affects you. You know, like anything can be a potential trigger. The grocery aisle five in in like, you know, um, you know, Dwayne Reed can be a trigger if you see a product that brings you back or like a, you know, some, a smell or whatever. Um and so you need to tell yourself that you will bring your grief to work. You need to expect that. If you try to turn it off and, and are unable to, then you're just going to struggle. I think that a better course of action is to preempt some of these, you know, trick, you know, like sneak attacks and build time into your day where you know you can take breaks or uh, talk to your manager about, okay, like what is going on in your life right now? Like, are you in the early days? Is there any way that maybe you can work like four days a week as you ease back in? Is there any way, you know, if you have a demanding schedule, can you say, listen, once a week I have to go to a grief counselor. Can we literally mark this as me being unavailable? Because I need this in order to like give back to you. Um, are you in a performative role? Can you say, hey, uh, for a period of time, can I take like more of like a behind the scenes role. You know, can I do like more administrative work or or something like that? And um I really love this one and I suggested in the book so many of us, you know, are nervous about being evaluated about how people perceive us and especially obviously in the workplace because that's connected to income and you know whatever our roles are, promotions, etc., respect um for better or for worse. And so I think that it's also valid to say, listen, like, is there any way that maybe for the next three months, as I kind of like deal with the emotional fallout of like this thing that just happened and also deal with like a lot of logistical things? Because, you know, when someone dies, you normally have to take care of a lot of things that don't have anything to do with a funeral. You might need to find a new place to live or get a new car um, or transfer deeds. You know, there's a lot that's going on. And that is a lot of work and very overwhelming. Oh, my God. The okay. hours it, of time I remember spending on the phone over my dad's like... L Bank it's, it's insane. Password. It's like oh a, it's God. like an insult to injury, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, like, so I would say that um, you should really consider asking if there's a period of time that is not counted in the evaluation process. So, like, when you have your review, they just like are disregarding like March through June because that's fair. 
That's fair. You shouldn't be expected to perform at like peak level all the time. It's like literally not possible. I, I actually, though, just to draw that out, I mean, I, I, I remember interviewing um, a war veteran, an Iraq war veteran who had um, had experienced severe loss on his on his crew and and had PTSD, and and actually he worked himself and performed to the bone until he got into therapy. He never said no to anyone and was like a cyborg. Yeah, that that was me at the <laughs> beginning. That was me. Don't be me. Don't be this guy. <laughs> and, you know, again, like, sometimes you will be those people just because you're struggling and it's new and you don't know what to do and you're listening to some people who say work is your salvation, <laughs> you know, like, just don't just focus, you know, Um and you will do that. But I, I'm just saying, if you're listening to me, just keep my voice in your head and, say, you know, like that. Don't say yes to everything. Like there's just you, you are, grief is a full body, full mind experience. And grieving, grief brain is very much a thing. When you're grieving, your neurons are quite literally trying to understand the sudden absence of this person or this formerly living thing. It doesn't understand because your brain views this being as a given in your life. And it, it really can't understand that it's it's no longer a given. And so that's why we go to like suddenly call our person and then we remember and we're like, oh my God, I feel so stupid. It's not that. It has nothing to do with that. It's just the way that we're wired. So you have to understand like there's a lot going on and you should really cut yourself a break and build space in to to deal with that. Rebecca, you mentioned anxiety. Um, I'm curious how your relationship with your anxiety changed with the addition of loss and and how you manage your anxiety today. Um, you know, I feel like once anxious, always anxious. I'm like a <laughs> Upper West Side Jewess who was raised <laughs> in Philadelphia. I mean, come on. Like, obviously, I have anxiety. Um, who of us does not these days? I know. Uh, but I, I find, you know, I don't, I don't believe that I have debilitating anxiety. I, you know, it's, it's. I don't believe I have the anxiety that like drives you to just stare at the wall and be deer in the headlights all the time. For me, the anxiety kind of drives me, but also like takes, takes, takes it out of me. You know, it's not like, I wish I weren't like that because I do think that anxiety affects you, you know, adversely. It's, it's hard, but that's also part of being human and part of going through hard things. Um, especially if you're already kind of hardwired to have a level of anxiety, you just have to learn how to manage it. You have to learn how to stop yourself and pull yourself back into the moment and learn mindfulness techniques. And yep, mindfulness is like a big buzzword now, but that's because mindfulness works. You know, different mindfulness practices, basically they're meant to yank you back into the moment when your brain is spiraling out and you're like, oh my God, I have this, this, this. okay, just like, nope, be here now. <laughs> As my mom used to say, she used to um, quote Ram Das and be here now. Just like you got to get through, if you're really not, if you're feeling like your anxiety level is rising, you have to stop yourself and just remind yourself that you're here right now. You're safe. You just have to get through the next five minutes and then you'll take it from there. And so I would say that like these little practices, and I write a lot about them in the book, 
they really help me. You know, my anxiety level in general, I mean, we've been living in a pandemic for two and a half years. It's been hard and it's been isolating. But yeah, I mean, yes, my anxiety, I, I have anxiety. I just try my very, very, very best to harness it and and use it for, you know, something productive. And I don't mean just work, although work is real driver for me. I'm I'm really I'm very driven by my work. I'm very committed to my mis- mission. Very, very committed did, to my mission. Did anxiety help you create modern loss or drive it forward? Um, I think that it was more just like the exhaustion and annoyance that I had by um, always having to explain, like feeling so alone in this conversation about loss and wishing that I could just like talk to somebody in a way that was like, let it all hang out and real and like, you know, just made me feel like a human and didn't make me feel like I was in therapy and like made it really clear that if I, you know, um, had to, you know, if I was talking about my dating life or my work life or whatever, that it was like understood that all of these conversations were happening against the backdrop of loss. And so inherently people understood that it was coming from, I'm a person who lives with real loss and maybe that's why I'm flying that weird flag sometimes, you know? And so I I really felt like when I started meeting people in my life who got it, you know, personally, like firsthand got it. That's when I really felt like seen and like better and less freaked out, you know, about feeling like I had to spend all my energy putting up all these guards and putting up all these personal facades and masks. It just felt so much better to just, you know, say, look, I had this awful date and like, oh my God. And like, you know, just be able to talk and connect and and know that people were seeing me in like a full 360 way that and that included my grief and that really helped them to respond better to me that's it for today's show our show is produced and edited by mary duke our assistant producer and sound engineer is nick krinko Many thanks to the LinkedIn Presents family, to all of our guests for sharing their stories, and to our advertisers who bring you the show. If you love The Anxious Achiever, tell your friends. Subscribe, leave a review, follow us. You can also tweet me at MauraAM or find me on LinkedIn, where you can follow me, message me, or subscribe to my newsletter for more from the anxious achiever world. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.